In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Father Ben, one of the priests here, along with Matt and Spencer. Uh, we've heard we have some good news today, amen, uh, despite uh, our Old Testament reading, which uh, is a difficult and disturbing one. Um, a powerful man abuses and exploits a woman and then uses his power to keep the story quiet in order to maintain his power, his privilege, his status, not caring how many lives he destroys along the way. Sadly, this could describe any number of incidents that we find in the news nowadays, yeah? Hashtag movements like Me Too, Church Too, even ACNA Too, uh, which is our province. Um, stories we've heard uh, that are stories of powerful people explo exploiting and abusing those who are vulnerable. But sadly, this uh, story is about King David. And um, King David was a man after God's own heart, Israel's greatest king. As the psalmist laments in the psalm that we read today, there is no one who does good. No, not one. Our lectionary uh, shifts this week from, we've been, re we've been in Mark, and it shifts into the Gospel of John this week. For five weeks is this extended meditation on John chapter 6. Uh, Jesus says the bread of life offered for the sake of the world. And also, this week and next is the story of David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. We've been talking about power uh, lately in our sermons, and uh, today's Old Testament and Gospel texts offer us two very different postures toward power. David's fearful self-preservation of his own power and privilege versus Jesus' faithful self-giving of his power for the sake of others. Uh, and I uh, just want to say, too, I've relied on the insights of a couple women for this sermon. Uh, Amanda Rosengren, who is a priest in our diocese, uh, who pastors in the Chicagoland area, she said, shared her sermon notes with me. Um, she's preached, you know, every, every three years the lectionary comes back around, and for some reason she's preached this passage uh, every, every time. Uh, for, for the past six, six years ago she preached it, three years ago she preached it, today she's preaching it. So she shared her notes with me, they were really helpful, and I've also relied on uh, insights and perspective from Mallory Ruark, who's going to preach next week on the conclusion of this story and the continuation of the gospel story. So friends, here's our good news today, that Jesus is pulling us out of our fearful grasping for power and privilege, and he's gathering us into his kingdom where he receives and blesses our meager offerings, transforming them into abundant provision for all, his own flesh and blood offered for the life of the world. Church, let's let go of our self-preservation and instead open our hands and offer what we have, however small, for the sake of others. We will be satisfied, all of us, in God's love, and there will be plenty of leftovers. Second Samuel is the story of David, and up until chapter 11, it's going pretty good. David uh, is proving himself to be somebody different than Saul who was Israel's first king and a faithless person. And he seems to be doing great. He's chosen. He's appointed by God. He has been displaying courage and faithfulness to God. Uh, he's just become king over all Israel and Judah. God promises to build his legacy. His, he has a reputation as a man after God's own heart, but it all starts to fall apart in chapter 11. This disturbing turning point for David that reveals that his story, too, is a tragedy. 
He's not going to be the anointed one to lead Israel to salvation. He, too, is just a man. There is no one who does good. No, not one. The text indicates that it is the time when kings go out to battle. But, it says, David stayed at Jerusalem. Already we're getting a hint that something is wrong. David's in the wrong place. David's become a powerful man. He can take it easy while sending others to do the dirty work of war, indulging his privilege and status as the anointed one while others risk their lives on his behalf. He wakes up from a cozy afternoon siesta, goes up to the roof to walk around a bit, gaze on his domain, this whole land that he himself owns as the king of Israel, and he sees a woman, he sees a beautiful woman bathing, and he sends his servants to find out who it is. He finds out who it is, Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, and then even though he knows this is the daughter of a friend, this is the wife of one of my warriors who's out risking his life for me on the battlefield, he sends servants to go get her. He gets what he wants from her, and he sends her back home. Kings will be kings. This is how all the kings do it. After they find out she's pregnant, David sends a message to Joab, send Uriah, send Uriah. And then he tries to cover his tracks by manipulating Uriah. Why don't you go have a nice time with your wife? You've, you've been working hard. He tries to cover his tracks um, twice. He tries to do this to Uriah. And ironically, Uriah won't do it because of his own integrity and faithfulness. The exact thing that David is not displaying towards Bathsheba, towards Uriah. So it doesn't work. His cover-up doesn't work. David sends a letter back to Joab, ordering Uriah's secret murder. Notice how David sends people in this passage. He's sending people all over the place to do all kinds of things on his behalf. David has gotten really good at ordering people around. He's gotten used to being a king. And it's led him to this place. So what is David's sin here? I don't know if you guys have a, in your Bibles, there's the headings about what this passage is all about. Sometimes it just says David and Bathsheba. <laughs> right? As though, it's just, a, it's just a, it's a love affair. You know, it was a, right? What's David's sin here? What's happening? Coveting his neighbor's wife? Sure. Murder? Yes. Adultery? In the technical definition of the law, sure, but not in the way that we normally think about it today, because that would imply consent on Bathsheba's part. Mallory's going to talk more about this next week, but let's be clear. Because of the power dynamic here, this is not a love affair. This is a sexual assault and a cover-up. Bathsheba is nothing other than an innocent victim of David's sin. David had complete power over her as king. So underneath the coveting and the sexual sin and the murder, there is something more fundamental fueling all of these other sins, the abuse of power. That's the fundamental sin, the abuse of power. Next, passage, next week's passage is going to make this even clearer when the prophet Nathan tells his story to David, the story that makes David so upset that he doesn't realize it's about him is a story of someone abusing their power. Abusing their power. David indulges his privilege and then out of fear of losing his reputation as a righteous man, 
He abuses his power to maintain that status. He's desperately grasping, desperately trying to hold on to power and privilege and not caring who gets hurt along the the way. But we also read from the gospel today. David's story is a tragedy, but Jesus shows us what it truly means to be God's anointed. Jesus is the king who will be a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Friends, Jesus is today pulling us out of our fearful grasping for power and for privilege, and he's gathering us into his kingdom where he receives and blesses the meager offerings that we bring, transforming them into abundant provision for all. His own flesh and blood offered for the life of the world. Church, let's let go of our self-preservation and instead open our hands and offer what we have, however small, for the sake of others. We will all be satisfied in God's love and there's going to be plenty of leftovers. Notice the contrast briefly about how Jesus relates to power and privilege in the gospel passage that we read today. David indulges his power and privilege. He separates himself from the plight of his people who are fighting on his behalf, but Jesus moves toward the need that he sees. He stands in solidarity with the crowds. He has compassion on the crowds, and he uses his power to meet their needs despite his own exhaustion. He playfully asks Philip, I like to think he asked this with a wink, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? Because clearly we're going to feed them. Right? I think he liked messing with his disciples a little bit like this, right? Where are we going to buy bread? You know, the disciples kind of short circuit. They're like, Jesus, I don't, calculations, you know, like six, like what what are you talking about, you know? Where are we going to buy bread? But Jesus wants to meet the needs and he uses his power to do so. David takes something small from someone. Wives were considered property at this time. He takes something small, a wife, from someone else. And he throws Uriah a self-serving feast of manipulation and deception and wreaks havoc and the destruction of many lives. Jesus, however, takes something small from someone, five loaves, two fish, and throws the people a self-giving feast of joy and abundance, multiplying the offering for the blessing and satisfaction of all. David stands over and above his servants and sends them to do his bidding. Jesus involves his disciples in the work. I love that Jesus doesn't say, check it out, I'm going to do a miracle. Right? (laughs) This is the solo number for me. No, he involves his disciples. He says, where are we going to buy bread? In other passages, uh, of uh, other accounts of this miracle, Jesus has them distribute the bread. He's never shining the spotlight on himself. He's never standing over and against those that he is serving. He's always involving them, inviting them to participate in the abundance that he gives, despite their fear and lack of faith. Jesus also refused to allow his compassion and provision for the crowd to be leveraged to enhance his own power and privilege. When they come and they want to make him king by force, he withdraws so that they can't do it. Jesus will not leverage their naivete to his own advantage. He will continue to act for their best interests even when that makes them upset. That's how much we can trust Jesus. He won't answer our bad prayers, but he'll hang with us until we pray some good ones, and then he'll give us everything that we need. Amen? So how do we respond to this good news? Three things that occur to me that I think would be helpful for us. Let's examine our own instinct to protect the powerful at the expense of the weak. 
Because of the ways that I think we've all been conditioned, the instinct lives in all of us to one degree or another to protect institutions, to protect powerful people rather than protect the most vulnerable among us. We've seen this play out again and again and again in the media, in all kinds of cases of abuse of power. There's a knee-jerk instinct to protect the institution, to protect the powerful people. I think it's often because our identities are wrapped up in these institutions. Our identities are wrapped up in these powerful people that we identify with. And so it's really a self-preservation instinct that kicks in for us. So let's begin to just see these instincts. Let's just notice that they're there. Let's not be naive and think that it could never happen here, or I'd never, or we'd never. Let's notice these things, be honest about them, so that we can hear good news that sets the captives free in our midst. That's the first thing. The second thing that occurs to me is that we can perceive and confess our own fearful grasping for power and privilege. We all have this in us as well. Abuses of power uh, aren't reserved for the wealthy and powerful people like David or the people out there who, you know, clearly have nothing better to do with all their money than to fly to space or something. You know, um, we, all, we, all have, uh, we all have some kind of power. We all have some kind of influence over others. And it's important to recognize this, otherwise we easily fall into misusing that power to get our way. Education is power. Money is power. Being white is power. Being male is power. Being a parent is power. Having talents and spiritual gifts is power. Do we use our power to listen to those who lack power? Or do we pay attention only to the powerful? Do we use our power to speak and act on, those who lack, on behalf of those who lack power? Do we have compassion for those who are victims, who are powerless? Or do we blame them for their lack of power or simply ignore them because we can? Do we use what we've been given to build up the whole community or only ourselves and what we want? For me, as a white person, as an educated clergyman who people call father, sometimes in a silly way, like my kids. My kids, my kids found that hilarious when people started calling me Father Ben. They were like, you know what? That's funny because you're, you're our literal father. So they say it in a, fu in a funny way to me. They actually call me Father Ben all the time. <laughs> Which, it is funny, Cameron. It's just funny. <laughs> Isn't that silly? You can start calling your dad the same thing. Yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> but it's been humbling for me to realize uh, lately how often I unwittingly capitalize on my power to get what I want in little, in little ways. When my wife or my kids tell me that something I've said or done has hurt them, I notice that my first instinct is to defend myself to point at my good intentions rather than validate their feelings. I do this because I fear losing the power and privilege that comes from others perceiving me as a good guy. I'm one of the good guys. And if you just tell me that something I did hurt you, well, that threatens that story, that narrative about me. And that, that feels hard. So my instinct is to defend myself. And instead, I've been learning slowly my wife will tell you, to take responsibility for the impact of my actions rather than try to defend myself or absolve my good intentions. I'm learning to do this by offering a simple, unqualified apology. I'm sorry. I didn't realize my words would have that kind of effect on you. Thank you for sharing it with me. I want to do better. 
Something like that. I have to write it out because I'm not very good at it yet. <laughs> I have to let go of my fear of being misunderstood in these moments. My ego is throwing a temper tantrum in moments like this, saying, you've got me all wrong. I'm being misunderstood. I'm a good guy. I didn't mean to. But as I give up that grasping after power and privilege and instead just open my hands and offer this meager gift, this little sack lunch of an apology. I find that I didn't really need what I thought I needed anyway. My apology becomes participation in the kingdom, the abundance, the surprising abundance of God comes into that situation. We're all bathed in divine love and new possibilities open up. So that's the second thing. Third thing is this. Let's offer what we have, even if it seems too small. For me, that apology, this act of weakness and vulnerability, it ends up facilitating communion in the kingdom of God, which is what I was wanting anyway. That's why I want to be thought of as a good guy, because I think that's going to make you want to be around me, and then we can have communion. So what I want is communion, and my small act of just offering the apology I get to participate in the kingdom of God, breaking out in our midst. Another way that we can offer our gifts, offer things when it seems too small is oftentimes, you know, we read these stories, we talked about these hashtag movements, Me Too, Church Too. These can be difficult stories to read, partly because we're not directly involved in any of these things, and it's hard to know what to do about it. We feel powerless to affect any kind of change for the good. All of the ideas that we have about how to be involved, they just feel like a few loaves and a couple fish. But what can small, such a small offering do to such a great need? But I want to encourage us as an active response, just like the disciples in our gospel text, to just simply offer what we have, even if it feels too small. Bring your loaves and fishes to Jesus and offer them, trusting him to bless and multiply. I don't know what that is for you. But I want to encourage us to just bring those things and trust that this is participation in the work we're not in charge of the results. We don't get to be in control of anything. We just participate. We show up. We learn. We offer what we have. And we trust that God's at work in the midst of this. Table groups are kind of a microcosm of this. These, weeks, these groups that meet during the week where we gather together. We show up with ourselves, with our presence embodied in food that we share together. We listen to each other. We celebrate with each other. We lament with each other. We pray for each other and for the church and for our world we practice life together as best we can. Friends, this is how we become the church. This is how these meager offerings, through these meager offerings, we grow into the body of Christ, a community joined by our common hunger for communion across difference, rooted and grounded in love, instead of holding on to power and privilege. We just offer what we have for the sake of others, and we trust that God's grace is sufficient to multiply it, to meet the needs and to fill us all with the fullness of God, often in surprising ways that none of us could have predicted ahead of time. This is life in the kingdom. So I invite you to think about this as we go into prayer together. How do you need to let go of grasping for power and privilege today? And what meager offering do you need to bring today? Because Jesus is pulling us out of our fearful grasping after power 
and privilege, and he's gathering us into his kingdom where he receives and blesses our meager offerings, transforming them into abundant provision for all. His own flesh and blood offered for the life of the world. Church, let's let go of our self-preservation and instead open our hands and offer what we have, however small, for the sake of others. We are all going to be satisfied in God's love with plenty of leftovers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.